0: Heads, order your plane ticket to Dev Connections later. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maceolik here to announce show number 168 with guest Jean-Paul Butu, recorded live Wednesday, March 15th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer, online at www.devexpress.com. And also Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who caught his nephew looking at a model view presenter... Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much. You're listening to .Net Rocks. Here we are again. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here in New London, Connecticut. Yeah, almost embarrassed to admit I belong to New London, Connecticut, but here I am. You know, I actually thought Richard of of picking up and moving today because I was watching Jeopardy, and uh, they were talking about famous cases like atrocious court cases and the kilo versus new london came up on jeopardy (laughs) and i'm like you know i i lived here long before this happened and now i'm actually thinking about moving away (laughs) of course i never one court case can ruin your whole neighborhood uh, it just looks really bad you know yeah and you know the the people here are great it's just the idiots in government that's the problem Mm -hmm. They ruin it for the you rest of the You would not be the first person to have said such a thing. In particular, the New London uh government, just ask anyone around here.
2: <laughs> ask anyone.
1: They can't they can't decide on anything. There's some uh, there's a lot of bickering, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, nobody wants to know about that. Hey man, we're here again. Yeah. Yeah. Show one hundred and sixty-eight. Is it that many already? Yes. Man, you know you know what was funny? Did you see that email? I'm not going to say who it was just because I don't want to embarrass him in case he would be embarrassed, but I want to read this email. This is amazing. He's pretty funny. He says, hi, Carl and Richard. I just want to say thank you for your great contribution to the programming world. You guys are truly stars. I listen to .NET Rocks religiously in the car at lunchtime and even in the shower. Imagine. TMI. I'm trying know? not to. TMI. <laughs> I <laughs> I've learned a lot from you guys, and I want to say that DNR TV is the best thing that happened to the programming world since .NET rocks. As a Rocky in the programming world, I'm not sure what that means, but as a Rocky in the programming world, I find these videos tremendously helpful. I think he meant to say a newbie. Maybe. Maybe maybe not. I don't know. Indeed, because of you guys, people at work think I am really smart, and honestly, that is not the case. (laughs) (laughs) did you really
3: want to tell anybody that
1: (laughs) yeah so name withheld due to you know whatever concerns how have you been man oh i've been really good we've been uh fighting some serious server
3: problems lately so i've been real busy this week you have you've been out of commission yeah well you know once in a while it actually looks like i work for a living it doesn't happen very often but once in a while
1: that's what happens when you're on call right
3: yeah I sort bet. of think
1: of you like a you know physician you know that has a beeper that when it goes off everything stops and you have to go. You sort of fit that role, yes, very much so
3: the most of my customers are very much of the mindset of as long as it works, that's fine, the moment it doesn't fix it instantly, right so that's been my life for a number of years. Wow
1: well, this week richard i was uh, you know we got a lot of emails about people interested in the in the uh podcast downloader program project that i 've got going on i 'm almost yes. ready to uh to get some serious testers and some feedback, but a lot of people send in some great requests for feedback. Funny how a lot of the features people are asking for we 've already sort of put in the spec you yeah know, that we we've, yeah. we've been we've been looking at the stuff that 's out there and seeing where they were deficient. And, uh, you know, we came up with a spec that looks pretty much what people, you know, like what people want. So we're and almost... like
3: that, like us, we're all completely baffled that there's no
1: great podcasting client out there yet. Right. So it's going to be more than a client. It'll be a service. It'll optionally run as a service, a Windows service. So you just set it and forget it. And, you know, and the key is that, you know, we want it to be around the user experience. So much of these things are about the files, you know? You know what I mean? It's all file-centric. Like you're going to sit there and go through 10,000 files. You know, what we want to do is find out which shows you've already listened to and, you know, move them to another place. And, you know, if I want to grab my iPod, I want to say, give me 30 minutes of shows. Boom. Just do it. You know, I don't really care about this file or that file. I have already subscribed to a list. I know which ones I want to listen to, you know? So that kind of stuff. Anyway... The development goes on, and uh, we'll keep you posted as more events unfold. Well, hey, Richard, you know, last week uh, I was talking to our guest this week, John uh, paul Boudou. Last week we were talking on DNR TV, and he actually stepped us through a test-driven development project from start to finish. We're doing this project over two weeks, and uh, the first week is, you know, last week's show, so it's still up right now at DNRTV.com and then next thursday you'll see or actually this thursday you'll see part 2 of that so uh i thought right. it, it's a very simple application in its scope but it, it but it follows along the lines of what people do in regular enterprise programming it's not some sort of academic exercise as much as uh, it is you know r- real world kind of stuff cool. so anyway we thought it was good to have jean paul on dotnet rocks at the same time to sort of talk about uh, test-driven development in the real world and, and you know, why he's committed to doing demos and things that, that are real. So let me introduce Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul S. Boudou is a senior .NET delivery expert who has been working with the .NET framework since beta 1 of .NET 1.0. He spends his days working as a senior developer for ThoughtWorks, building enterprise-scale applications utilizing the .NET framework and agile methods. John Paul can be reached at bitwisejp at gmail.com and makes continual efforts to update his blog at wwwjpboodhoocom slash blog. Welcome, John Paul.
4: Hi, Kyle. How are you doing?
1: It's good to have you on the show. Now, you were in my a VBNet Masterclass a long time ago, if I remember correctly.
4: Yes, I was. And it's something that uh, now that all my fellow thought workers hear that, I'm going to get razzed about till the day I leave, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I remember specifically when you were in the class that uh, you you sort of knew a lot of this stuff already. You were I know what you were doing. You were like scooping me out so that you could take what I was teaching you and go back and teach it at, uh, at, to your guys at work, right? <laughs>
4: Well, No, but we we did we did end up using your material um, yeah. for training some of the developers at the place I was working at the time. So it was it was beneficial.
1: Yeah, good. Well, I'm glad because you know I, I'm not in the training business or anything. So that was oh, good no, for no. me. No.
4: Yeah. You
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it was fine. And and am you know, I'm making a joke here. We actually we went through a process where we formalized it, and it was fine. But yeah. I actually had a guy. I don't know if I ever told this story. I actually had a guy. Sit up front in my class once, and on every word I said, he was taking copious notes. Type, 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 type. And you know, I thought at first he was just taking notes, and then I, on the first break, I turn around and I look, and he's editing a PowerPoint presentation. Oh. And 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 you know, and he actually was a computer science teacher at a college, and he wanted to you know take everything that I said. And regurgitate it for his students to create a class. Oh animate. dear! Wow!
4: Yeah, that's not good.
1: He had big ones. <laughs> anyway, test-driven development. We've talked about it occasionally on the show. I got to admit, it's not something that I've done personally. Um, but um, after going through what we went through last week, uh, it, it makes a pretty compelling argument. Especially, I mean, it looks like a lot of a lot more work. And you said even yourself, it is a lot more work, but. The benefit is that the work is up front, and it means that your methods are really small, and you are very agile. You can, you can make changes quickly, and when it comes down to shipping date, you know, you don't, you're not chasing obscure bugs.
4: Uh, that's right, Carl. And one of the things that we talked about on, uh, on DNR TV is test-driven development is often mistaken to be just testing. And that, when people approach it using um, that mentality, it's actually incorrect. Because test-driven development is really, it's about design. Ultimately, it's about design and how your application is going to get built. And you're you're actually building tests that are going to drive out the design of your code, of your enterprise application or your departmental application, whatever it is. Right. And that's the thing, that's the biggest mistake I see people make when they try to jump into doing TDD is, a lot of people actually, you know, install an unit, they'll fire up a unit test, they'll write a unit test around a class they already have, and they say, I'm doing TDD." Right. And that's not the case. They're, they're doing automated testing. Right. But they're not doing test-driven development.
3: Well, there's nothing, nothing bad with automated testing.
4: Oh, absolutely but, not. Uh, not at all. Not at all. Um, and that's the thing.
3: So, so how do you define the difference in test-driven development?
4: So the big difference, I mean, obviously the biggest difference when we talk about straight unit testing, uh, you're assuming that you've already got an object in place that's functional that you actually want write, to write some tests around to prove that it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. You've already built this object up. It might have n number of methods, and you know that they're, you think that they're working. I mean, you've run the application manually, and everything looks okay. Um, now you fire up nUnit, so you write a new test fixture, and you're going to write some unit tests around individual methods in that class. So that's unit testing. That's, you know, testing at the, at the method level, each public method on a given class. And, but that's done after the fact. Unit testing is done after the fact. You've already built your object. You've already designed the class. It's all, it's all done. TDD, on the other hand, we write the test first. So you, you write a test for, let's say, let's say we want to write a test for an order, an order object. And when we add a line item to that order, the total for the order should increment. Okay, now, using test-driven development, we would write the test first, which means we'd have to come up with a concept of an order class. And then we'd we'd probably have to say, okay, well, this actually needs an add method that's going to take an order line item as an argument. Yeah. And then once once we've done that, we could actually check the order.subtotal property, and it should be whatever the total for the line item that was added to it was. But at the time you write the test, None of these concepts exist in the domain model at all. They're, they're not even existing in code nowhere. So you, when you first do this, you're going to have a test that's uncompilable because none of these classes exist at all. So then the first step is obviously to get the test compiling. And then once it's compiling, run the test and make sure that you've got a failing test. But the goal is to write a failing test. Write a failing test before you've actually, you actually get to implementing functional code. Once the test is failing, then write enough code to make the test pass, refactor the code, and move on to the next piece of functionality.
1: Now, um, the thing I found fascinating about watching you do this is that they're uh, built into, uh, is it is it the end unit framework or the mock object framework? I can't remember which one, but built into the framework that you're using here are are tools where you can set up rules that say, this you know method that I'm calling should do such and such, and you can test to see that you know it adds something to the collection that the value that there should be one object in a collection and and that uh, or it increments a number, and you can actually write the code to check that in the test, so you can sort of test not just test to see that a method returns the correct value. You know, it does its thing, black boxish wise, but yeah. but that inside that method, it's actually doing the stuff to other objects that it's dependent on.
4: Exactly, and one of the things you're talking about, Carl, is we're talking about um, um, what the concept we talked about in DNR TV was we were testing, yeah, testing the dependencies. So testing how our object under test interacts with other objects that it depends on. And the reason this is so important is one of the arguments I hear a lot with the push back against test-driven development is, well, yeah, this is fine and great for those um, let's build a calculator scenarios or let's build something super simple that I'll just throw away and never use again. But when we're building enterprise applications, we have layers and layers of objects that depend on one another to do work. How do I actually you know, build up a test and test this object that actually has you know, maybe five dependencies that it needs to do its work? How do I actually write a test around that and still you know, eventually be able to plug this into a real live running system. Now, before the advent of things like NMock 2, which is the, the, NMoc, the mock object framework we use on DNR TV, developers just rolled mocks by hand. No, so we should, we actually, should stop
1: here and define a mock object.
4: So basically a mock object is an object that stands in place of a real object that the object under test depends on. It's it's not it's not it's got no concrete implementation to it whatsoever. Other than it can make it, it can basically track whether a method got called, and also if a method gets called under this certain scenario, return this value back to the caller so it can carry on working with it.
3: So the interface is there, and it makes happy noises, but it's not real.
4: Right. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. it, is,
1: it is instrumented to say, I did do something. And I should point out here that it's very easy with this NMock stuff to do this. I mean, you'd think, oh, my God, why would I be writing a mock object? You don't. You basically, it's a factory, you pass an interface, and you get back an object. That's right. It's that easy.
4: And that's one of the, one of the beauties about using mock object frameworks like NMOC and also things that drive test-driven development in a really clean way, is the fact that when you force someone to come up with an interface first, you're immediately introducing looser coupling into your system. Sure. Because you're not tying that object to a particular implementation of that interface. As long as that object knows it's got an instance of that interface and it can call all of its methods and have them behave accordingly, it doesn't care how that's implemented. Right. And at test time the object that you're actually testing doesn't actually care that it's talking to a mock object because we're setting up the mock object to say, hey, when this method gets called, return this back to the caller, or, hey, track that I actually got this method invoked on me at least this number of times. And the mock mock framework is taking care of that. Now, again, in the past, before we had things like this, developers would usually do this themselves. and Really, what you ended up with was a lot of, um mock object classes that you had in your testing packages that looked almost identical and a lot of the times all they had was simple boolean flags that said hey yeah this method was called or huh. this method was called it, it was pretty hacky and the problem was is you ended up with not managed correctly you ended up with these mock object classes just littered throughout your you know your test projects right and that's that's why that, um, the introduction of these te- mock object frameworks makes things a lot tighter because, really, in a given scenario, in a given test, the behavior of a mock object for one test might not be the same as the behavior for the same mock object under another test. Right? Because let's say that we have a method that we want to invoke on, on a dependency, and we know that whenever we invoke this method on the dependency, it should return us a number. Okay, now we're mocking out that dependency. So there's no real implementation behind it when we're actually working in our test. We're just saying, hey, when you call this calculate method on this calculator service, it's going to return you a number. Okay, but let's say we want to deal with a scenario where what happens if the dependency throws an exception? Right again, we're working in a scenario where we're not working with the concrete implementation. We want to see how our object that's using that dependency handles the exception that gets thrown from the dependency
1: right It's sort of a way to n- not worry about other things that might be breaking because you're testing this one method yeah. because because there actually is no implementation, so there are no dependencies but dependencies is the is the big issue right i mean the the tenant that you were talking about of of uh, t d d is to atomize you know, to make tests that go down to a single method. And, you know, what happens when those methods call other methods that have other objects and dependencies? Yeah. You have to make sure that every single method has a test case, right?
4: Well, and the thing is, the reason that TDD lends itself so well to this is what ends up happening is, at a very low level, you're writing tests for a particular piece of functionality. And the way that you saw me naming my tests in the, in the DNR, episode right you're basically naming your test to show what is the result of this test supposed to prove
1: right so, so what were some of that, the examples that you
4: give so us an we example had, we had that we had that lookup collection um, class that we added a method to the first test that we wrote on the DNR TV episode was it should be able to bind to a lookup list
1: right so that was a function called should be able to bind to a lookup list
4: that was the name of the test yeah and the, and the resulting method that got invoked was a bind method on the lookup collection class that we passed a lookup list to.
2: Yeah.
4: Right? And then all we wanted to make sure is, we wanted to make sure that add got called so many times on the mock lookup list object when bind got invoked. So that's the thing. Whenever you talk, we're not, when you're talking about TDD, you're actually working on one specific piece of functionality at a time. So you can think of it, when you think about acceptance tests, when you think about user acceptance testing, uh, a, user, a user comes to you and says, hey, I want to make sure that when I click on this button, that this label here gets updated with the current date, time. Yeah. Okay? It's not that much different when you're working down TDD at TDD at the actual unit testing level. What you're doing is you're saying, hey, I want, to, I want to know that when I call bind on this lookup collection, that it should do something with that lookup list that gets passed to it.
2: So you're right. working, it's,
4: it's almost like acceptance tests for developers, essentially. You know, you're, you're, you're working at a level low enough that you can conceptually think about what is this object actually trying to do here, and you just write a test for it.
2: Right.
3: We call it testing, but it almost sounds like you're describing the intent of the
4: code. <laughs> that's it, exactly. That is it, exactly. You're, you're exactly, and, and that's why one of the things that Carl touched on in DNR TV, that one of the things that you look at when you look at the tests. Um, that are written using test-driven development is they very much become developer documentation. Yes, You can quickly, right. look, at, you can quickly look at a test and say, hey, oh, um, this is how this object is supposed to work when it does this. Right. You can see how it's going to work with its dependencies and what it's actually going to do when that method's is invoked. And it becomes a very nice clear, readable way to say, hey, this is what this piece of functionality for this class does.
3: Right. You know, it strikes me, this is one of the classic problems I run into with a lot of software, but it strikes me that test-driven development is really this goal-oriented idea that I'm going to define my goals clearly up front, and then I'm going to break those goals down into smaller and smaller goals and execute on them and have a mechanism to test that I reach them. The number of software projects that I've jumped in on where management was convinced there was a problem, and nobody could seem to tell me when they would be done. Know, what the end of the project actually looked like. This sounds like a method really focused on this is what the end looks like. This is how you know you finished.
4: Well, yeah. that, from exactly, from a developer perspective, is how can you actually turn to one of the de- developers on your team and ask them to prove you prove to you that they've actually finished this piece of functionality without having to fire up a big monolithic application and run it manually for you? Right. right that's a, That's a big problem. It's like, how do you actually verify that, yeah that, you know, JP said he was going to work on this story and he was going to get it finished and, you know, he was going to implement, um, you know, date-based sorting for this order list. Right. You know, how, how can we prove that, you know, the date sorter actually works properly? Well, if they did a TDD, then obviously the tests are going to be there by the time I say, yeah, I'm done. And it's just a matter of actually running the unit test to prove that, hey, as far as we know, at the, at the at the at that level of testing, this object satisfies what it's supposed to do. Now, of course,
1: yeah, that the is testing. We, yeah, I knew what you're going to say. That yeah. assumes the testing <laughs> was done correctly.
4: Now, and that's the thing. One, obviously, I, not trying to design. You know, one of the things that TDD often gets slammed down for, and it, again, it's it's easy to look at things with a you know with our skeptical glasses on when you're not quite sure what's going on, is the lack of apparent upfront design that takes place when you're using test driven development.
1: Yeah. It's not an and, architect's dream.
4: Well, and that's the thing, it, it's not. It's not the it's not the case for, you know, the typical architect who would like to get up there and get onto a whiteboard and, you know, draw a big fancy UML diagram with, you know, 20 classes and show all the interactions and, and then hand it over to the developer to say, "Hey, implement." That's um, you know, that's the classic, you know, ivory tower scenario that Often lends, you know, leads developers down into a, a path they don't really want to walk.
1: Yeah, we've we've all worked on those projects yeah. that have been over-architected and without any, you know, without until you write the code, you don't you don't really know what's going to happen. So that's
4: it exactly. It's, yeah. That's totally the case. And and one of the things with with test-driven development, like test-driven development, largely came out of the agile, you know, the agile um, school methodologies of programming and. Agile and XP, like we practice at XP at um, ThoughtWorks, and it's very much about, you know, don't break off too much at a time. Yeah. Small, small little chunks, you know, put together over the course of a year, two years, build big systems.
1: And in just a minute, I'm going to ask John Paul about some of the pitfalls that uh, TDD developers go through. But right now, I want to mention that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik RAD Controls. The most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications online at www.telerik.com. We're back with John Paul Budhu talking about TDD. Uh, John Paul, what are some of the pitfalls that uh, developers find themselves in when uh, when they get into TDD?
4: So we've got to put ourselves in a little bit of a context here because obviously most developers are not working on their own; they're working on teams of other developers. Right. So let's let's take the case of the the lone developer who is seeing a. Really interesting TDD demonstration and is thinking to, to themselves, well, I'd really like to apply that in my daily development. Now, that person is, and I'll, is honestly in for a bit of a world of hurt. Hmm. Especially if they're the only developer on that team who's had exposure to test driven development. Because the problem is, is TDD is as big, if not bigger, a paradigm shift as it was from procedural to OL programming.
1: Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, I I don't know from experience, but just from what I've seen, I mean, it's significantly more work. It's almost, you could almost say it's twice the work.
4: Well, it's not just the work. It's, you're changing the way you think about approaching problems. Like, about about approaching programming problems. You're you're changing the way you would normally develop. Like, most of us start off, you know, grabbing a piece of paper, drawing up some diagrams, writing up some code, and then maybe after the fact, writing some unit tests. Yeah. Now we're actually switching to a, a method where we actually write code for code that doesn't exist yet. Code up that code so we can get stuff compiling and then get the test to pass. It, it sounds simple. Like when I say it, it sounds, well, how hard is that? But trust me, when you actually sit down to do it, it really changes and forces you to rethink the way you actually go about developing.
1: One of the ways in which it is different, John Paul, was obvious to me when I was observing you going back and forth. It is this ping-ponging between the test and the code, and the back to the test and back to the code. And you, you make a change to the code, and that that means the test has to change. And because that test changes, that uh, prompts some other code, to another test for another piece. And so it, it is this sort of really nice dance that happens between the test cases and the code that uh it, I don't know, it fills things out. And the thing that the other thing that you mentioned that uh, I think was really fascinating is it also forces you to um I, I said it before but atomize, you know, make smaller subs out of bigger, more complicated methods.
4: Well right? that's one of the things that that the test helps you drive is it helps you Really quickly identify whether you're trying to do too much in a right. particular test.
1: Right. I, I guess the typical experience of a lot of, uh, you know, rapid application developers is, you know, you, you have some, you know, going back a few years anyway, you have a a button and that button makes this one call that does all these other things and some magic happens and then pff, the end result spits out. So a lot of people have learned incorrectly to, to, to make these big behemoth subroutines. And so this sort of forces you to dissect all those things into well, smaller and, units.
4: And you you actually made a very interesting point there. And I think that, again, we live in an instant satisfaction society, right? So right. we can, you know, have a data-driven – I mean, the example we use on DNR TV, you know, probably 30 percent, if not more, of the people are going to look at it and say, well, I could have dragged and dropped and had that list populated with you know, zero lines of code in under two minutes. Right. Right? Yeah, but, uh, totally that's, missed the point. Yeah, it's not, it's not the point, but that's the thing is, as developers, we've been almost spoiled a little by the instant satisfaction that drag-and-drop can give us. Yeah. And it's, and that's the thing. Those are the people I find it hardest to make the switch are the people who are heavily, heavily dependent on studios, designers and wizards right. and all that stuff for, doing, for building their apps because TDD is all about writing code. It's all about writing, writing, co- writing test as code, and writing actual real objects that are meant to do the work. I'm not saying you can't do TDD using, you know, the designers and stuff like that. It's just trust me, it does not lend itself well to it at right. all.
3: You know, it's funny. At the same time, I was thinking TDD is also pro rapid results. Uh, Programming. Sure. Oh, but it tends to decompose those larger tasks into smaller bytes that you can individually test and know this code you've written is qualified, that it does what it's supposed to do, and you can move on to the next piece, then the next piece. I think if a, this whole system is oriented around resisting that monolithic chunk of code that is dependent on a lot of other things, so that the only way to test it is to write everything and you have more and more and more code written that is untested you nailed before it. you finally hit the big red button and try and make it go.
4: Yeah, and I'm actually glad you mentioned that, Richard, because I'm glad you touched on that point, because one of the things you'll find as people get into TDD is, is it, it's like you said, there is lots of satisfaction because you're just writing small tests, and when you get that test to pass, it's like, oh, yeah, right on. And then you, And even though you might not get up to the actual UI and seeing the final result for a little while, you're getting little. You're winning small little victories, um, you know, every couple of minutes, and yeah. you're progressing along. And that's that's where a lot of the joy in TDD comes from, is because you're not you're not worried so much about you know. I mean, obviously, you're working toward an end goal. You've you've broken it down into x number of problems that you have to solve before you can reach that goal. And solving each of those one problems in and of themselves is actually fairly simple.
1: Well, and the thing the thing is, is I, I read this in Dr. Neal's book on uh, on uh, XP which is that just the act of breaking large complex things into smaller into smaller uh parts means that you can give yourself enough code that you can finish in a day right i mean how many yeah. times have you sat down to write some code in a day and finished it and gone home with a sense of completion yeah and and when that happens it's wonderful you know yeah. it feels like oh yeah sort of like making a making a you know taking a list that has one item, get in shape, right? Or clean the house, even worse. (laughs) 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 And breaking it down into, you know, take out the trash, do the laundry, whatever, pick up the living room, and uh, being able to cross those things out as you go
4: along. Well, you touched on a good point there, Carl, which is also, it's not directly related to TDD, but when we talk about Agile, which, you know, which we practice and which a lot of people who are doing test-driven development they're working on Agile teams. Not that that has to be a prerequisite, because I believe people can do TDD even if they're not on an Agile team. But one of the things you touched on is the fact that if we don't get into that habit, if we don't have people around us who are able to look at this, this little problem, it's something as simple as, say, you know, let's uh, connect to a database using a configuration file. Yeah. Okay, that, okay that, that's a nice, big, broad statement, but that can be broken down into several smaller subtasks. And each of those can be addressed, you know, relatively simply, and you can write tests around those and get them all working as a whole. But like you said, if you don't have that skill of, you know, looking at this one, you know, this one piece of, uh, this one requirement that maybe a client has come to you with, it's the job of your, you know, your, your iteration manager, your developers, your senior developers to actually look at that one big task and break it down into actually small, granular pieces of functionality that you can actually hand as a test to a developer and say hey this is a test you need to get working and it could be for a brand new piece of functionality but it's for one very small granular piece of functionality
1: you know richard and i were talking about this in the context of something that we're involved in that it, it's a common pro, it's a common mistake of novice programmers or maybe maybe not novice programmers but uh, of of many programmers to To start out with something simple and just make it grow and grow and feature creep and creep and creep until it becomes unmanageable. And by unmanageable, I mean it it literally takes so long to get your mind around the code of what you were doing and where you were going. You can't physically remember all the things that you forced yourself to remember to write this code that you you, you resist working on it at all. And uh, and a lot of projects drag on and on and on because of that kind of thing. You see yeah. that a lot, right? Yeah. So, well, how does this uh, how does this e- either exacerbate or or help in that si- in that situation?
4: So again, keeping with the keep it simple, um, stupid principle. Obviously, when you're doing test-driven development, because you're only fo- focused on getting one piece of functionality to work at a time, you honestly and again, this is straight from the field. You really are building things as simple as possible, and building up from there. And what ends up happening is, as you write, let's say we've actually we've gone we're three months into the project, and we need to introduce a new piece. Um, let's say we need to introduce pricing strategies for you know different pricing strategies for age levels in a in a store. Yeah. And we've already got a pretty decent code base built up, but now we say, okay, well you know what, it's not just a simple add all the items together and calculate a flat total, now we have to actually apply a pricing strategy based on the age of the person who's making the order. Right. Okay, now, okay, so that's actually a a pretty significant change. And with all the code that's been built up, you know that you're just working on this one new test. You're adding this one new piece of functionality. Now, the reason what's happening is if you find that you go to write that test and you're having trouble actually writing the test because, you know what, there's... We've actually introduced some dependencies here that shouldn't be here. Obviously, one of the things that happens with test driven development is it's part of the whole TDD process. I, I've mentioned it before, maybe I haven't. It's this process of called um, red green refactor. So, write the failing test. So, that's the red. Okay, green is get the test passing. Refactor is the, the one part that should never be missed out on and not be skipped on. Right. And that's actually taking a look at what we've done. And this could be, you know, this could be day one or month two into a project, looking at the code, looking at the test we just wrote, and saying, you know what? I had to go through a lot of work to get that test to actually work. Yeah. Right? Like I had to go, like I had to go through some crazy, you know, object traversals, and is there a way I can actually simplify this? And that's when you actually take the time to step back and say, you know what? Um, in the interest of making this simpler for the next edition, for the next, for the next feature, again, you're not trying to future-proof. Right. And that's the big key: is you're not trying to build for um, future functionality that doesn't exist yet.
1: Yeah, that's but
2: a big you are mistake. Trying, you
4: are trying to make it simpler to maintain what's already there. So refactoring is a big part. And one of the things that I I joke about a lot on the project that I actually just rolled off of is I think when I rolled off the pr- the solution was at, um it was close to 39 projects. Really, really you know, it was a pretty pretty big project. And I was just joking because one of these days, every every couple of weeks, we'd be we'd go through these mass refactorings where we'd change we'd we'd restructure a lot of the code base. And I just laughed and I said, You know what, somewhere some guy is trying to do this without any unit test whatsoever. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest reasons why a lot of people just don't. Right, because once you get to a certain point and you're, you, you get you get a certain critical mass in your code base. Right. And you just can't know without tests there that you're not just breaking a whole whack of stuff.
1: That's right, because it's a very right. simple it's operation to do a refactoring, but you don't necessarily know you you got everything.
4: Well, that's the thing. And even subtle refactoring, like it doesn't necessarily need to be a wide-sweeping refactoring. It like could just an be a simple. Methods. It could be a simple little, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to omit this parameter here and I'm going to, um, instead, you know, pass it into the constructor and just assume it's always there. Right. That's a little subtle thing, but without the test, there you have no way of knowing that you might not have just introduced a subtle little bug into the system.
3: Isn't now, that the definition of legacy code? Code I'm no longer willing to refactor because I'm afraid of it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, unfortunately, I think too many too many systems fall into that that trap too early because, unfortunately. The fact that TDD is used to actually drive the design of your system, I will grant, obviously, when you're talking about big enterprise systems, whatever way you slice it, there's going to be layers of dependencies, and there's going to be, you know, you're not going to just be able to take a look at that system and in five minutes understand it in its entirety. You You probably need to spend, you know, a day or two actually sitting with a developer, going through the code base, watching them write tests, watching them use the app to actually get a good feel for what's actually going on. You know, Even the best developers in the world can't sit down, can't come into a, a brand new company they've never worked with, brand new set of developers they've never worked with, look at a code base that could be fairly substantial, and actually grasp it within a, a couple of minutes. Mm. Right, it's just, it's just not something most people can do, if, right. you know, if anyone. Richard right? can
1: there... do it, but n- maybe nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
4: all right.
2: But I
3: was actually thinking the nice thing about TDD is since my first step is to write the test, I'm going to force myself to understand a lot. Before I try and put any code into the equation at
2: all. Right.
4: That's it exactly, Richard. And I actually made the exact same point to Carl the other day and that's exactly what happens is there's no better way for a developer to actually get down and dirty and learn about what's going on than having them actually write a new piece of functionality test first. They'll yeah. get to know very quickly where everything lives in the system and what objects are responsible for what. And again, it's not an immediate okay, here's a test Here's a test I'm writing. Implement it. Of course, it's a it's a growth process as well. But one of the things we talked about, Carl mentioned the ping pong effect of you know writing some tests and buying some code and going back and forth. Well, one of the things that we utilize when we're going into clients, client client um, sites where we want to actually teach TDD to developers is we'll often utilize a concept called ping-pong programming. And what happens is, as as the as a developer who's comfortable with TDD. I'll sit down and I'll actually, we'll say, okay, we're going to work on this, this story right here. We're going to work on this, you know, open a database connection using config file information, for example. Pretty simple. But what we do is we'll say, okay, here, I'm going to write the test for you. So this is nice because I'm going to write the test, which means I'm, already go- I'm going to put in the classes that I expect them to create. I'm going to put in the methods I expect these classes to have. And then it's up to them to go and implement.
1: So one guy and writes then, the test, the other guy does the code.
4: And then we flip.
1: Yeah, and then you flip back, back and forth.
4: Yeah, and then you switch, and then you have them write the test and you implement. It's a really, really neat technique to coach people into getting into the habit of test-driven development and what it actually means. And but I find also it also really sounds
3: like a great way to draw a new person into a project and get an idea of how things go together and and how to work with the code that we've already got.
4: Hmm. It's one of the best ways I find. And one of the things that, again, we haven't really talked about Agile because this really isn't a discussion about Agile, but one of the things that this makes an assumption about is that you're in an environment where the client is open for you to have two developers sitting at a desk for a, you know, for some period of time. Right? So we think about this concept called pair programming, which Agile and XP talk about a lot, having mm. two developers, you know, working at one keyboard, one or two monitors, depending on, you know, client budget, and actually have two developers work in tandem on one piece of functionality, yeah. And if you, again, one of the things that this is this is often kind of looked at with you know fifty fifty people, either people like it or they hate it.
1: Right. Yeah, we've and, talked about that before on the show.
4: Yeah, and the problem is, is ultimately, regardless of whether we actually put a name to it, all of us in our daily jobs pair program at one time or another.
2: Well, it you, might not be formally, it might not
4: be, you know, yeah. hey, you're going to sit with me for the day and we're going to work on this. But even if you have somebody peeking over your shoulder for 30 minutes and they're watching you write code and all of a sudden you hear them say, hey, no, this could actually be done better like this, or have you thought about doing it this way? That's pair programming. Right. Right? It's not, uh, again, it's been given a bit of a bad rep by people saying, well, hey, I can, have, I can get double the work if I split these guys up and put them on two, different stories
1: one keyboard but, two brains
4: exactly and um so, I well, mean, it's not necessarily
3: again, true either i think your point jean paul is a good one that you are going to go through the process that pair programming does whether you want to or not every exactly. piece of code is probably going to be looked at by two eyes going to be rethought it's just that when you spread it out over a long time it actually takes longer and more mistakes are made hmm
4: Absolutely. If you do it up yeah.
3: front and plan it in, nobody's surprised, and you usually get a better product.
4: Yeah, and that's what exactly Richard. And one, and one of the things that we find as well, again, not to be agile is not about trying to make people feel uncomfortable or you know single people out. But one of the things that helps with people who are just getting into TDD is having that pair. You're not going to write any code without writing a test because they're not going to let right. You. right, right. You're not going to let
3: Pair programming attacks two big issues. One is not following the rules. Hmm. But the second one that I think is easily as important is resisting thrashing. <laughs> a guy by himself can run around in circles all day. Absolutely. Two guys won't go for more than 10 minutes.
4: Yeah, that's it exactly. That is Yeah, that's yeah. a really good, good way to put it. And, and that's the thing. So, I mean, ultimately... Pair programming is is definitely a a hard sell to a lot of clients, but a lot of clients do see the value and do realize that, you know what, having two programmers so that one machine is actually going to be a bit more productive than what I might have originally thought.
3: I find it's one of those things that you can start them into little by little. Let's do this piece as a pair and see what the results were. And if you've got good metrics around your testing, good metrics around your QA, your debugging, so forth, and you're able to show, look at the quality of the code that came out of the pair versus the other the general quality of code. Fairly quickly, people get the idea. We're going to. We it's not that we wrote fewer bugs, is that we fixed them before we tested for them. so we got that done sooner. Same amount of work, just done sooner.
1: And we'll be back in a minute with John Paul Budhu talking about test-driven development. But right now, I'd like to remind you that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the good people at Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, controls, and frameworks for the .NET developer. And you can find them online at www.devexpress.com. Our old friend Mark Miller.
3: So Jean-Paul, one area I don't think we've talked on yet is dealing with uh, applications as they go version to version in test-driven development. The more mature app and how it reacts under this model.
4: So again, there's most of the applications I've worked on have been not shrink-wrapped applications that we actually deploy, you know, mass market, and which is probably the same case for a lot of developers who listen to DNR TV. So we're talking about, you know, applications that are built for a specific meet, need for a specific company. And one of the things that we set up when working on a project is, obviously, TDD and Agile going hand-in-hand. Hand, one of the other practices that we do is we we implement a continuous integration um, scenario. So right. we have cruisecontrol.net or VSTS, you know, if you're brave enough. And... Um,
3: <laughs> we have everything. <laughs> uh, and I was just thinking, continuous integration and, and test driven development have got to go hand in hand very nicely.
4: Uh, well, that's the thing is one of the things that uh, we showed on DNR TV is I set up scripts using Nant, which is the .NET equivalent of Ant for um, the automated build tool. So it's it's basically a more mature version of MS Build, and I say that with a lot of confidence, having taken a look at both of the products. Yeah. Um, so basically it's 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 a scripting it's just a scripting utility that I can use to actually automate my build process. So I can do things like compile my application, run my unit tests. I can even do things like deploy or run my functional acceptance test. There's a lot of things you can do, but one of the nice things that happens is now it ties in very nicely into cruise control, which right. we can set up on a server at timed intervals we can say, Hey, check is there anything new in the repository from the developers. If there is, let's check it out and let's run our whole suite of tests. Now, this could be all the tests. This could be from you know the the tests that we write when we're doing TDD to the functional tests that the users write, all the way up to water tests that drive the UI.
1: Now, we we just threw out a whole bunch of new concepts know, for maybe yes, for people. Um,
4: uh,
1: before before, let's go back and define continuous integration. And I also m- want to mention that uh, Scott Hanselman and I talked about this on Hanselman. It's at shrinkster.com dot com slash d eighteen. D18. So let's go ahead and define continuous integration.
4: So continuous integration, it's not a tool, it's a process, right? There's just been, there's been tools to aid the process, but CI at its heart is a process. And it's all about ensuring that at any given point in time, you've got a code base that is ready to be deployed in an instant. Okay. Okay, That is the ultimate goal. You You want to make sure that every single Every single, if somebody comes to you, if a client comes to you and says, hey, JP, deploy the app right now, you can tell them with 100% confidence, absolutely, I'll deploy it and know that there's no issues with the, with the code. Yeah. Okay, and the way you do this is, again, CI is a process. So you're talking about, if we look at, what, if we look at TDD, so if we talk about TDD, let's, let's focus on one specific scenario. I, as a developer, have just written one test, and I've got that test passing. Okay, now I'm in a team of five other developers. So let's say it's a fairly small team, nothing crazy. But I've just added a piece of new functionality that I actually want to get back into the source code repository for everyone else to have. Okay, now before I can do that, I have to A, run my own test locally to make sure that everything's good. Okay, if everything's good, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to update my local copy with what is currently in the repository. Yeah. Because somebody else might have made changes.
1: Right. Okay, so, so it's a sort the of step- automation of building and updating.
4: Exactly. And so that's the second step. So first step is run my te- you know make my changes, run my tests. Everything's good. Then I can update, get the other changes from anyone else, run my tests again, make sure they're still passing. Because who knows? Somebody might have added a change that just broke the new piece of functionality I just tried to add. Right. Okay. Now again, if if I get that passing, if everything's all good. Again, just to be anal, do a quick update to make sure no one's, che- no one's updated. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to actually commit my changes back to the repository for everyone else to pick up. Nice. Now, the thing with tools that are built around a CI process like Cruise Control is what is happening is it's not putting it on the developer's head to make sure they're continually updating the repository to know that things are breaking or not. Because mm-hmm. what happens is the source code, um, the repository server, so the Cruise Control server, Is always sitting there in the background, polling the repository to say, hey, are there changes? Because it's got its own local copy of the code on its machine. Hmm. And then what happens is every time it checks, it says, hey, there's new changes. What it's going to do is it's going to update its local copy with the changes. So just like what I would do if I was a developer. Right. And then it's going to, in turn, all in an automated fashion, it's going to update its local copy. And then it's going to run all of the tests. Yeah. Now, the nice thing about having it run on a separate machine than the developers is if anything breaks, it can quickly let everyone know, hey, JP, check something in that broke it. Yeah, and Scott
1: it. talked about the way they, they do this in some places is, uh, I think it maybe even at, at uh, Carillion, is they have like little lights that flash in the in the developer's room. <laughs> yeah. You know, like not a strobe light or anything, but just like when the light goes red and blinks, you know.
4: Yeah, well one of our we one of our developers on the team that I just rolled off, he built um uh, an X ten plug-in for cruise control right. so that they actually controlled an ambient orb when, <laughs> when the bill broke. <laughs> so it's there's just lots of there's, so I mean cool. there's lots of things you can do. I mean for on the on the team that I just rolled off uh, Cruise Control has this little tray application called CC tray that you can run on your you can install on your local client machine mm-hmm. and basically it just uses remoting to pull the Cruise Control server and check the status yeah and what you can do is you can configure it to actually play custom sounds when the bill breaks or when it passes and it was just absolutely hilarious when you heard a bill break on our project because everyone had different sounds, ranging from the Homer Simpson dough to, um, the, to quotes from Monty pa- quotes from Monty Python on the Holy Grail. So, Excellent. absolutely hilarious! So. Albatross.
3: <laughs> the sudden burst of pandemonium noise. You know, all right, somebody did something. Yeah, bad.
4: exactly, exactly. So, again, CI CI often gets mistaken to be a tool when it's really a process. Yeah. It it is a process, but thankfully there are tools that help with the process. Because, honestly, it would be tedious for everyone to, obviously, as a developer, it's your responsibility before you check in code to make sure that it's actually passing. Right. But to make sure that stuff is actually being checked, even if developers are being careless, CI... Cruise control runs in the background and is always making sure that developers are behaving themselves. So,
1: hey John Paul, can you call out some resources out there? Uh, obviously, Nant and 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 things oh, like that. But yeah. what are some other resources? Maybe some blogs or some sites that people can go to to learn more.
4: Well, I mean, one of the things they can go straight to check out ThoughtWorks.com because ThoughtWorks um, that we actually built Cruise Control.
2: Oh, okay. And
4: so we are the developers for.
1: <laughs> you know. Uh, okay. Cool.
4: And um, so we built both control and control.net uh, One of our developers, actually one of the first develop one of the first projects I worked on at ThoughtWorks, I worked on with Michael Too, who is one of the developers for NUnit. Wow! So right. NUnit.org, NUnit.org is where you can actually download the latest version of um, NUnit. So okay. NUnit is the dot is the testing framework for the automated testing framework for .net. Now there's lots of there's lots of variants out there right now, but NUnit is probably one of the oldest and most trusted for .NET right now. And again, not to be a not to be a VSTS slammer, uh-huh. but I still find it a lot easier to write tests using plain old NUnit attributes than the stuff that VSTS provides.
1: Well, that was my next question: is you know where does Visual Studio Team System fit into this, and, and do you see do you see Visual Studio Team System getting into this uh, more heavily? Well, one of of the
4: interesting quotes that I just read today, uh, which I completely agree with wholeheartedly, and you you guys probably remember a while back when Microsoft actually posted that article on how to do TDD with VSTS. Yeah. It quickly got pulled from the site because of how absolutely ridiculous it was. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the things that I read today, which I completely agree with, is if you're using VSTS to right-click on a class and generate tests for you and calling it TDD, you're not doing TDD. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, now, that's not to say that you can't do TDD with just what comes out of the box inside of VSTS. Like, you can use the the attributes that uh, VSTS provides, and you can do test-driven development, right? But the problem is, is right now, with VSTS, there's no nice, easy ways to, you know, quickly run things from a command line. One of the big things that you'll find with a lot of guys who do test-driven development is they're heavily dependent on having things they can execute quickly from the command line to get immediate feedback. Right. They don't want to have to fire up the big, full-blown Visual Studio build right. before they can wait for feedback. They just want to quickly say, hey, is this going to work? Yeah. Uh, one of the other problems, too, one of my other criticisms for this current iteration of VSTS is um, the Build server, the Team Foundation server, doesn't support um, timed builds. So it doesn't mm. support, actually, out of the box, pulling the Pulling the repository, you know, pour, um, pulling the new repository that uh, VSTS provides every couple of minutes, and actually checking for changes. Huh. Now there's plugins you can there's actually you know you can actually download third party products that do it now. But it's just surprising for such a simple thing that you know posing it as a CI environment with what they are trying to do, but that wouldn't actually have come in right out of the box.
1: How long has continuous integration been around
2: as oh, a process? It's been around for
4: a long time. Okay. Right? So, again, but, I mean, again, I give Microsoft credit for for moving in this direction and actually sure. trying to introduce some of these tools, but they are still a little bit immature, and a lot of the guys who have been doing this for a long time, they look at these products and they just kind of like, mm, okay, yeah, it's a, at least it's an attempt, mm-hmm. uh, not a great one, and hopefully in the future it's going to be done a little bit better. So, you, and you know, I there's think-
1: probably a few people from Microsoft listening. Do you have any other suggestions that you might want to uh, address there in their direction?
4: Well... Again, we have we have lots of we've worked on a lot of projects with Microsoft, and we have there's there's lots of really good. Obviously, Microsoft has very very smart people, and they have lots of people who completely buy in to the TDD style development, and you know are also frustrated with some of the ways that um, things are being done. But they are trying to get them addressed. So I do have I do have hope for. The, you know, future versions of the product and what it could bring to the table. Okay. And again, I think, it's a, I think it's a good step that Microsoft is at least starting to look at this and f- thinking seriously about, you know, hey, TD is something that more people are buying into and right. we should actually try and support it a bit better.
2: Right.
3: Well, I've got to imagine that the mandate that Microsoft's got to eat their own dog food around VSTS is going to drive that product forward in a big hurry. Absolutely,
2: Uh, yeah.
3: Microsoft programmers are demanding people, so I'm sure they're all continuously integrating and using test-driven development and those types of tools, and we're going to see them show up fast. Do
1: they, though? I mean, it begs the question, how many Agile projects are going on at Microsoft? Not a lot, but this is not requiring Agile. Well, it's sort of the Agile philosophy. I mean, (laughs) test-driven development is it definitely doesn't seem like an architect, top-down, corporate methodology.
4: It is, you're right, it isn't. But at the same time, I, I, again, I, I agree with Richard on that comment because ultimately, and again, one of the things that i found more and more as I give more of these presentations and try and introduce TDD to people is the people who the light actually goes on and they actually make the switch successfully, I've, I've yet to see anything, any one of them actually go back and say that they're not going to use TDD anymore. Hmm. And that's even if they get stuck in a project that doesn't believe in Agile principles, they will be the lone programmer b- building out their functionality test first.
1: Now, I may, be, I may be asking the wrong person here. Maybe Richard could chime in because he's, he's played on both sides of the fence. But are there any sco- projects in scope you know, where Agile, and maybe even let's just narrow it to, test di- to test-driven development, where TDD wouldn't be a good model? I mean maybe Windows Vista could Windows Vista be built using TDD?
4: Well again if we if we eliminate the UI which is always the sticky point for most developers when it comes to testing. Mm. When it comes to actual functionality we're working on even when you even when you're talking about graphics programming. Um Neil Dr. Neil Rudin wrote a book called I think it was called Introducing Agile to .NET Developers. Right. And he actually started up in his first one of his first examples. He built a little paint application test first, and he showed how you could actually test the graphics drawing using test driven development techniques. So, I honestly believe that as you know, UI aside, even though that was testing UI things, UI aside, there's not much that well, you I'm, ta- can't I'm do. really
1: talking about a project that's big in scope, you know,
4: oh, well, millions, again, bazillions
1: oh, of lines of code,
4: yeah. Well, and again, one of the things that agile again, often gets hit for a lot is people say, okay, well, yeah, Agile sounds like it would be good for small teams, and, you know, but when it gets larger, Agile just seems to maybe fall apart, and honestly, that comes down to the skill and success of your project manager. You need a good Agile team to scale Agile up, and I've seen Agile work for teams of over 150 developers.
3: Wow. I think I am going to chime on this now because, uh, and, I, and I laugh that you picked Vista as the question, Carl, because <laughs> there was the great rearchitecting of Vista that Alchin did back in uh, August of 2004, right, where he basically took a step back after Service Pack 2 had been shipped and he looked at it and said, you know, "We have to do this a different way. We cannot continue to build on our monolithic project over and over and over again." And he's talking about Windows. Yeah. And yeah. they tore Windows apart and did a much more test-driven oriented Agile approach really? to building the
1: operating system. It's exactly what they've been doing. Well, you know, that wasn't a setup. I was clearly curious about that. <laughs> <laughs> that
4: sounds well, it sounds like a total and I, setup. <laughs> and again, one of the things that I'd like to really just quickly touch on is too often, too often than not in the field, I see um, people go into a project and they say, Hey, yeah, we're doing agile. And the project fails and they say, Oh, well, it was agile. 90% yeah. of the time that was because the person who said they're doing agile, they had no clue what agile was about and they really did not have any idea how to drive an agile project forward. Mm-hmm. And and that's why that's why I think too many people take the cop out of saying, "Hey, yeah, we're doing unit testing, we're doing we're doing pair programming, so we're doing agile." Right. Okay, it's not the case. Agile is so much more than a couple of buzzwords about styles of development. You know, it's just like any other project. It needs good PMs who are familiar with what it takes to run an Agile project, you need good... You, architects are not dead in the Agile world. Architects are still no. alive and strong, right? Like, they're not dead at all.
1: Right. And I didn't mean thing, to imply that, that, that either.
4: Exactly. And one of the things that, unfortunately, get the, the wrong impression gets sent across is, because of the heavy emphasis on TDD, is, well, what happens to everyone else? You know, what happens to my QA? What happens to my architects? What happens to... Right. And the problem, the thing is, is you got to remember is, a project team is a project team. We still have QA. We still have testers. We still have users. We still sure. have architects. It's like, about it's developing the
1: implementation is what exactly. it's about. Like, so, yeah.
4: so, again, I think that I, obviously there's I'm not. There's no such thing as a, civil, a silver bullet for app development or a methodology, right? You need to use what's going to work best in the scenario. And I'm sure there are scenarios where maybe Agile isn't the best fit. Mm. But, uh, again, it's just like you've got to be able to look at the problem and say, hey, can we actually use some of these principles in this scenario? And if we can, go ahead. If not, then find something else that actually will work.
3: My experience with Agile has shown that in a lot of ways, Agile depends on even more discipline from the developers. And I think it even raises the minimum skill level. The good news about Agile is that it, ha- it has a system in place that enforces improving skill levels along the way. So you tend to find more skillful teams doing agile. And when junior people come in, they learn fast mm. uh, because the system is really well architected to do that. Uh, but I think the big challenge here is that the whole idea of having a variety of skill levels developers all being productive on an application is much tougher in Agile. There's a heavy obligation on good discipline and good approaches. And often uh, those things fall down. Projects fail because you don't have that level of discipline. Mm. Well, and
4: actually, Richard kind of stole the words out of my mouth about the whole disciplined approach to TDD and Agile development. It really is a very, very disciplined approach to to development. And like you said, with the whole... um, skill disparity that can often occur when you're on a larger team, that is where things like pair programming just become paramount. Yeah. You know, you cannot bring, uh, you know, fresh out of university developer onto some of these projects and expect them to be productive on their own. They're going to start crying day one. You know, they're going to look at the, the code and they're going to be, you know, you know, running for the door, right? They, right. Need, they need experienced pairs, you know, seasoned, senior programmers, you can sit with them write tests for them, actually get them, you know, get them more comfortable with interface-based programming, get them comfortable with design patterns, get right. them comfortable with just plain old object-oriented design. Right? There's, there's so many skills that TDD implicitly um, thinks that you already have a good handle of, like, design patterns. Are, you know, yeah. design patterns, often when you do refactoring on large projects, you're refactoring to patterns. Right. So you're refactoring the code to take advantage of design patterns that can actually simplify some of the stuff you're doing, you're taking advantage of interface-based programming to, to decrease the coupling between objects, right? And you're taking advantage of just good old old principles to actually factor your solution properly, mm. right? So again, it, that's what Richard says there is actually bang on. And the fact that if you were on an ad, if you're on a team that you just shoved a poor lowly junior developer and said, "Hey, build this," yeah, you know what? Uh, more often than not, that would be a bit of a recipe for disaster. Hmm.
1: Well, okay. And uh, you heard it here, folks, on .NET Rocks. Uh, let's come to the end of another show. A great show. Thanks, John Paul. Before we let you go, though, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, I asked a lot of people this question. what uh, What's something you've seen online recently that really tickled your fancy and maybe a tool that you downloaded or something you use all the time? something you can't live without, maybe a new website. Maybe it's a new toy. I don't know. What's uh, <laughs> what's cool in your world?
4: Well, I I really, one of the tools that I've just found invaluable just as, as of late is the tool that actually Scott Hanselman had up on his ultimate tools list, and that's Slick Run.
1: Slick Run. Oh, Slick yeah.
4: Run. Yeah. Gotta love it. Yeah, it, uh, it's just amazing. For just a floating command bar, just love it.
1: So tell us what Slick Run is for those who haven't heard.
4: So SlickRUN is essentially just that. It's a floating, command, a floating command prompt, essentially, that you can just type commands into, hit enter, and it'll chase your mouse cursor if you want it to. But one of the most powerful things about it is you can actually configure it with these things called magic words. So I could actually put in a magic word that took me straight to DNRTV's web, DNR website when I typed it in at the floating command prompt. And there's all sorts of crazy things you can do with it, and it's just—it's so handy because for me, I—I I live at the command prompt almost all the time. So if I can just hit Control um, Windows key Q, will actually have it chase to where my cursor is, yeah, on the screen, and I can just type in my magic word. It's got—it's got IntelliSense, so it'll actually try and match what I'm what I'm going for, <laughs> and I'll just say, hey, yeah, that's what I want. Hit Enter, and it'll actually fire up the app that that thing is associated wow. with, and take me right there. So it's—it's it's very neat. That's um, cool. Yeah,
3: I watched Scott Hanselman using SlickRun in a demonstration on other things, and my thought was Code Rush for Windows. Right, (laughs) he'd he'd done so many little shortcuts and things that he had the fewest possible keystrokes to everything he wanted to do. Right, that it really gave that same sort of impression. It was very Code Rush like. Excellent.
1: So, all right, John Paul. Well, I can't wait to see what happens this week on DNR TV with the conclusion of our two-part series on test-driven development. So, uh, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll talk to you next week on .NET Rocks.
4: Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Richard.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s DotNet Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maceolik that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band, Carl Never Got Sleeps. .net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com Plop. It's time to get your impact back.